Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of the humans behind the research. everyone welcome back to another episode um i'm really excited about this episode it's a little bit different than the ones that i've normally done in that my guest on this episode is actually done their graduate schooling and is kind of on the other side of it now so we're going to be hearing from a different perspective on what it's like to kind of get out of grad school whether or not grad school was worth it if they thought they learned anything in that time or any of those skills were applicable and kind of talk about where they are at now Um, Another interesting facet of this conversation was our conversation around rejection. And I found this conversation to be particularly pertinent to my life at the time. Um, At the time that we recorded this episode, I had very recently received a rejection for a fellowship that I had applied for. And I know that for me, at least, I took that rejection pretty hard. And that's because, you know, I think a lot of us in grad school, myself included, often have our self-worth and our thoughts and feelings about ourselves tied up in whether or not we're academically productive or academically successful. So to receive a rejection from something pretty big, at least for me, was a little bit devastating. I definitely took it personally, and it was hard, you know? When I received that email, I spent the rest of the day crying on and off. It was like going through a breakup, (laughs) Um, you know, where you're grieving the potential, or you're grieving what you thought you could have had, and that didn't end up happening for you. So, um, you know, rejection is a normal part of life. I'm not discounting that. I understand that, you know, whoever this fellowship got awarded to, I'm sure that their work is brilliant and that they are a brilliant person and they are more than qualified and you know I shouldn't be I know that I shouldn't be taking these things personally but that doesn't mean that it's not hard and I think it's important to kind of unravel those feelings of well I can't be a good person or I'm not a good person or I don't have any value if I'm not academically productive or successful because I think then we just end up winding ourselves up into something that isn't good for us at all mentally or emotionally, especially in academia where rejection is rampant, but yet no one seems to want to talk about it. So just know that (laughs) I have received my fair share of rejections and this most recent one was particularly difficult to take and I spent a lot of time crying about it and that's okay and we're moving forward and I know that I'm very content with what I've done in my work and just because I didn't win something doesn't mean that I'm not successful or I'm not productive or that I'm not a good researcher, but I understand that it's hard sometimes. So just keep that message in mind when we talk about rejection today, but I think it'll be a conversation that a lot of people will relate with. And maybe this will change your way of thinking about what it means to get a rejection or what to do after getting a rejection, because I think this conversation was enlightening and it was helpful and it kind of just puts a new perspective on things. So I think before I spoil (laughs) anything else, I'm just going to let the episode play.
Today's guest is Sarah, redirector of rejections, believer of timing, and person of contrast. Let's hear her story. So, you know, I was one who wasn't one of those kids who wanted to be a firefighter or something cool when they grew up. I, again, kind of saw the people around me and thought I want to be who they are when I grow up. So my grandma was a pharmacist and I was she was one of the first pharmacists, um, a, a female to graduate from a pharmacy class in all of Canada. So I was very proud of her. And so I was like, oh, I want to do that. I had no idea the chemistry that went into that or the academic demands of being a pharmacist. And you're probably laughing now because you know, that's also just not how my brain works at all. Um, But it, again, it was grandma's a pharmacist, strong, independent female kind of made her name in this world. That's what I want to be when I grow up. But again, it was more, kind of the strong female she was that I wanted to be more so than the pharmacist. It was what I discovered as I grew older. I then decided I wanted to be a teacher. Absolutely. Cause my dad was a teacher and then a principal. So again, I'm following this path of wanting to be kind of these strong figures in my life and wanting to do what I find that they're finding fulfillment in. Again, dad kind of pushed against the teacher just for logistic reasons. And I think he knew that that's not where my heart maybe was. Um, And he probably did know me better than I knew myself. So again, it's taking from these kind of childhood dreams of what do you want to be when you grow up and finding like, what are the aspects actually in a profession that I'm looking for in these jobs? So strong female, someone who deals with the public, um, personable, someone who gets to teach and gets to educate and communicate and work with not only singular people, but family units and other teams. And it started to kind of slowly develop and form as I moved through the various academic settings that I know we'll talk about and landed on occupational therapist, which is what I am now. And my other grandma was actually an occupational therapist back in the war. And so I'd heard of occupational therapy, OT. But again, it's one of those professions, having done the master's and in it now, that still is so hard to describe what the heck it is, because we do a bit of everything, which I now realize fits perfectly with who I am. And my journey to getting here is wanting to be that person who always does a little bit of everything. It's that like jack of all trades, master of none. It's being able to kind of use the creativity and the various problem solving pieces, you know, it's finding solutions to things, creative solutions. It's that whole journey that goes into it. And it's actually crazy when you pause and look back at it and think, how the heck did this start out as me wanting to be a pharmacist, like a little five-year-old wanting to count pills basically (laughs) was it, but to take this journey through, I want to be a teacher. I want to work with kids to now, you know, having done all the research that I did within academia to now ending up eight years of university later, um, being an occupational therapist and practicing. So I know it's a crazy journey from a childhood dream to what actually comes from reality sometimes. 
Yes. Okay. Before we get into what led you here and before we talk about kind of the steps that you took and the different fields of education that you entered here and there. Um, I want to talk about what, so the fact that you are an OT now, and I know that it's difficult to describe, but I'm going to make you describe it anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So like if you could tell, like, for instance, I am someone who doesn't fully know what the range of responsibilities are for an OT. So just tell me, as, as this no began. pressure on the profession as a whole having me define it well okay how about this why don't we talk about because I know that there's specific types of OTs and you can go into particular fields as an occupational therapist yes. right okay yes. so how about we talk about what kind of an OT you are and what roles and responsibilities are associated with your specific yeah direction. fair enough so basically everyone thinks when they first think occupational therapist, they think work, like the word occupation, we always associate with work. Now, an occupation can be anything that you need to do, want to do, are expected to do. It's the activities that we do. It's the act of doing. And so whether that occupation is brushing your teeth or it is in fact going to work, these are all kind of things that an occupational therapist can help you get back to doing or begin to do. So it's creative problem solving in the sense of helping people to engage in their daily occupations. So it's whatever kind of barrier they find they're facing, whether that's a barrier with illness, a barrier with disability, um, really whatever kind of situation they find themselves in, it's helping people to do what they want to do. That's it. And so I always, as currently I'm working in adult mental health, occupational therapy community. And so I'm working with individuals age 18 to 65, sometimes plus that. And so that's a huge range. And if you think about all the different kind of barriers and experiences and times in life that adult age group um, is in, it's finding ways kind of to help them live a meaningful life. And what I like about it is it's not us setting goals for the person. It's not something that, you know, I'm telling you to do what necessarily I want you to do. It's helping you to find ways to do things that you find meaningful. That is such a long classic OT way to answer this question. But basically it's like helping people to do what they need to do, want to do, and are expected to do. That's how I would kind of explain it. Now, if by chance there is ever any other occupational therapist listening to this, that is my own interpretation and no judgment zone, but no, it's true. It's I'm helping people with, within my current setting now with things like self-care, you know, starting from the very basics, routine, structure, um, involving again with your just your daily basic activities whether that's washing dressing all those kind of basic things we need to engage in our lives and then the other areas are like leisure so the things that we want to do so helping people explore their hobbies and their passions and finding creative ways to get people involved in things and then the productivity aspect as well so whether that's work or volunteering or again just doing things that make us feel productive in our lives because so much of our roles and our our identity as humans stem from what we do. Um, You know, the first question kind of when you meet someone, it's, Oh, hi, my name's Sarah. Oh, what do you do? 
You know, that's such a common introduction in our culture. It's not, oh, hi, your name's Sarah. What's your favorite color? It's, oh, what do you do? We always want to know what a person's profession is or what they do with their time is when we're first meeting them. And I, I think that that just shows, I think, in our culture, but also in our world, how much emphasis we put on the things that we do. So I help people do the things that they want to do, Monica. How many times can I say do in a sentence? <laughs> I'm not editing any of that, just so you know. You need to. <laughs> um, okay, so in these conversations about what people do, like, and seeing that this whole conversation started off with what you wanted to do and what you ended up doing, maybe let's take a step outside of that for a second and let's talk about who Sarah actually is as a human being. So, <laughs> Tell me about yourself without telling me about your research you or your work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. About what I do. Yeah. Um, I am a creative at heart. I am someone who enjoys things like painting my nails, like painting watercolor homemade cards, like setting up my room and designing it in a way that makes it kind of aesthetically pleasing and homey to me. I'm someone who values my environment and the place that I'm in. I took up macrame during lockdown, taught myself how to do that. I'm a very creative person in my personal, professional, everything life. And I think that everyone in my life would say that. I'm also very much a family oriented person and not in the cliche way that people say, Oh, I'm a family person as a default answer. I am someone who I'm living in Scotland now, but I video time, FaceTime my parents daily, sometimes multiple times daily in what I think a very healthy way. Um, but I'm someone who just values like that relationship in my life. I'm very close with my parents. I think maybe because they had me older, I'm just very comfortable talking to adults and value that relationship and the way that they treat me like an adult. Um, what was the question, Mon? Who am I? <laughs> who are you? Not, not just a small one, just who you are. Yeah. Okay. Casual. Your entire identity. Um, yeah. My entire identity. I'm a creative. <laughs> I'm a family person. I'm a friend. Um, you know, it's again, it's all these roles that people identify with and they sound so cliche, but I think it's because it's such a common I don't know. I, everyone identifies, I feel like with, with friend and family member and worker, but I won't talk about what I'm doing because we're, that'll be enough of the podcast, but I'm a plant mom. We talked about that, Monica. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a plant mom. I'm a proud plant mom. I'm sitting amongst my plants all right now. But again, I think that speaks to my need and ability to be at peace in my environment. And I'm very much someone who is environment based. Yeah, I'm just, I wouldn't say, I think most, you know, some people would answer this, like I'm a free spirit. I'm not, I've got a little <laughs> bit of, I'm not, I've got a little bit of type A in me. I've, I like order. I like organization. I like problem solving. I like, you know, having issues and then working away finding a solution to that and I like there being answers for things and I think that's can be a strength and a weakness because again how did I find myself in this world of gray where there isn't an answer to so many things so I'm a person of contrast on I am someone who likes answers but lives in the gray zone I'm someone who loves to be creative but also has that analytical type a side to her 
Um, I am a mixture of a human. That's how I'll describe myself. See, was that so hard? No. (laughs) So how did you end up in grad school then? (laughs) Through the classic mess trajectory of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I did my undergrad in at Laurier in kinesiology and physical education, because again, I was wanting to be a teacher and I played sports and the kin degree is what you go into kind of when you're that's your general interest so that's how I got into kin learned a heck of a lot about myself within those four years um no offense to any professors I ever had but biomechanics and anatomy and the the hard sciences within kin are just not how my brain works I found myself leaning towards classes about aging classes about children and physical activity classes about health and well-being and learning about holistic well-being and how much I valued that. And I, I started to kind of, as, as you do in later years, to specialize in my classes and took ones that were more interesting to me, started connecting with professors who, again, were teaching the courses that were interesting to me. Uh, a professor I'll give a shout out to on a podcast, Dr. Paula Fletcher, um, who's also now become a friend as a result of all of this. But I was in her aging class, actually. And it was at that point, my fourth year of my undergrad, I knew I wanted to be an OT. I thought, okay, I'd volunteered a ton. I'd come to that kind of pathway in my life. And I knew I wanted to be it. OT in Ontario, in Canada, is very competitive to get into. I had very good grades. um, But that being said, I also, you know, lived a holistic life in university. And so... I was proud of my grades. I still am now to this day. At no part of my journey have I ever been ashamed. However, I didn't have the grades to get into OT at that time. And I knew that. So I thought, okay, pause. What can I kind of do in the meantime? So people were saying, take time off and work. Take time off and do other things. And Paula was there. And I was really showing an interest in aging and I had my own personal circumstances going on of my own grandmother kind of aging and being diagnosed with dementia and watching my mom take on that role of caregiver. And I started to kind of have these discussions with Paula and she thought that sounds, you know, your life right now sounds like a project that would be perfect for a master's of kinesiology thesis. And I thought, you hear a thesis and it's like, oof, it's, I didn't do an undergrad thesis. Research was not something that was necessarily on my radar throughout my undergrad. I had my blinders up and it was like, OT is where I'm going. Not necessarily thinking about the journey that might take me there. So I talked to Paula, we had, we had our discussions And I don't want this to sound like I used the Masters of Kinesiology as a stepping stone OT in a way to diminish what that was, because it wasn't. It wasn't something like me putting in time for OT. It was a step along my journey that, holy cow, am I ever glad I did, because it has prepped me for the real world just as much as that professional Masters has. So the research-based Masters versus the then other two years after that of the professional masters I did. And so here I am then at Laurier still school. I love and hold so near and dear to my heart, but 
working with kind of Paula Fletcher and doing that master's with my thesis being daughters informally caring for their mothers with dementia and doing a project that was quite literally very close to home and feeling passionate about that and knowing from an OT perspective that I already had that this was something that, you know, I would learn from and value. And I kind of found myself there and I'm not mad that I did. (laughs) And actually, before I get into my master's of science, occupational therapy, I'll delve in a little bit more if you want to my master's of kinesiology. So to start, I guess, how would you describe that particular experience in your life? So those two years that you spent doing your first master's? Growth, both academically and personally. I had a a major health incident in the kind of the middle of my master's. So I was one year in and... I'll give it a, another shout out just for recognition, but I had what was called Stevens Johnson syndrome. So I had a very serious um, reaction to medication that had me in the hospital for a long-term stay. And that was something that definitely forced a different perspective onto me. That was something that put me up, like put me on my bum, put me on my butt for lack of a better phrase. But we have to think about this massive life event happening in the middle of already a massive life event of a two-year master's degree like it's balancing everything and I to be honest the growth comes from finding my ability to balance and my ability to display resilience that I didn't know I had both academically to bounce back academically after being off for so long but also bounce back physically and emotionally and mentally after kind of my experience with that. Um, and I think, again, it's it's growth academically in the sense of I hadn't done formal research before. I hadn't done an undergrad thesis. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, doing literature reviews and reading articles and actually having to read the articles. It's not, you know, a, like in your undergrad, you'll get the recommend- recommended readings, And you can read them to help you better understand content. But when you're in, you know, your master's, it's you're reading because you need to for your own project and for your own content. And, you know, it's, it's growth in myself as a researcher, as a student, as a peer and supporting colleagues who are going through similar things in being on a different power dynamic with staff, with faculty, you know, we all find this, but as a master's student, there's a different power dynamic. You're, you're more of a peer and a colleague. You still have a supervisor, but you're allowed a different depth of conversation, I feel. And again, these are all, it's all growth within my same environment because I was at Laurier continually for six years. And so my identity as a student changed when I went into grad school because I was wearing a different hat. I was no longer an undergrad student. I was a master's student. And that might not seem like a big change, but it was within our small community because you're no longer just a student, you're TAing for your old professor's classes and you're having that change of and growth in relationship with academic professionals as well. So you're having to grow in so many ways within the same environment. Thankfully, it was an environment of comfort for me. I felt 
safe and supported to grow within that environment. And again, I don't know how many times I'll be able to say her name during this podcast. Hopefully she listens, but it's, you know, Paula supported me through that. I, I know what we might talk about this later on, but I'm such a trust life's timing type person. I, I don't know if it's necessarily everything happens for a reason, but it is like, it's that event happened at a time in my life for a reason. I was able to pause you know, my thesis and I was at a place in my thesis where I could pause and I was able to be supported by Paula and by my peers within my, my qualitative kind of study area. And I felt comfortable enough to not drop out of the program, but to, to do that, to pause, to grow and to take steps forward after that. And I think, you know, that's not something that would come with every program or every pace of program or, if there was different supports available for different programs. And I'm forever grateful for that stage of my life. And I was able to come back and, and keep going. And so that second year of the masters, it was, I think like any second year of grad school, you're more comfortable in it. You're not so much a fish out of water. You're the, you're the big dog in the water, big fish in the water, big dog in the water. Here we go. But you know what I mean? It's, you have grown, but you continue to. And so I felt like a researcher second year. I was back. I was ready to go. I felt supported to do so. And that was when the momentum of my research really took place. I was able to interview these amazing women who were superheroes providing, you know, this informal care to their mothers and mothers-in-law, mother-in-laws with dementia. And who were just, they were working. They were holding multiple roles of wife, mother, daughter, caregiver, and separating all those roles and filling all those kind of expectations within those roles. And with that comes growth too. those conversations as a researcher. It's, I would be stunned if I was able to kind of go through this master's without growing as a a human with all of the different, even reflecting on it now, all of the different pieces that went into it. It was, that program was growth for me personally, academically, and it all overlapped. That's how, that's how I would describe it. Growth and a good trajectory. I don't regret it one bit. Okay. Okay. So before we get into your second master's degree, I'm going to bring it up now because you said, well, maybe we'll talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the fact that you said that you are a trust life's, trust life's timing person. I am. Okay. So do you want to talk about that a little bit more and what that means to you? Sure. So I am trust life's timing and not in like an airy fairy type way, not in a dismissive way, but in a very purposeful way. I was raised religious. I still consider myself a religious person, but I'm not necessarily saying, you know, trust God's timing. I think that's a different way that you could say it. And I believe it, but the way I portrayed into the world is to trust life's timing, everything, you know, I say it with the good and the bad things. It helps me cope when sometimes I don't understand why things are happening at certain times in life, but it also helps me justify at the end of the day and reaffirm and be happy about why certain things happened. I'm now in Scotland, you know, this wouldn't have happened if I got in to an Ontario school with OT. 
right after undergrad. I wouldn't have had any of those experiences or that changed relationship with my mom and my grandma as a result of doing my thesis. I wouldn't have made the lifelong friends that I did. I wouldn't have like, I trust life's timing, even with the rejections in life. I think they are meaningful. I think there was a quote once, and I don't mean to get religious on you, but it's sometimes life's rejection can be God's redirection. And so in a sense of sometimes life's rejection can be life's redirection. What we may see at that time as a redirection, I just trust the timing of it. And again, not in a passive way and waiting for the next thing to happen, but just to then, okay, I'm forced down this other path. Let's go down that head first. Let's try this. And so it, it's something I find myself saying more to more, especially during a global pandemic. Um, but again, not in a dismissive way, but in a very active way of, you know, trusting the timing and the pace and the moments that happen in our everyday lives personally, academically, professionally as a way to, yeah, I guess as a way to cope and as a way to understand things and manage life's craziness, especially right now. Um, and it's definitely, I wouldn't necessarily say a mantra, but maybe it is. Maybe it's my mantra, trust life's timing. <laughs> okay. So alongside the train of thought about this mantra, how did you even get into the OT program in Scotland? Like, how did this journey, because you keep using the word journey, so I'm going to use it, it too. How did this journey even start? Like, take me to the beginning and tell me all the steps that led to you being where you are right now. Well, my last name is McFarlane. So really, I'm meant to be over here. Um, truly Scottish, but no, I again, didn't get in. Di no, I didn't apply after the four years. I just knew I didn't have the grades. So then I did the two-year master's of kinesiology. And after that, I thought, okay, I've got the grades. I've now had more life experience. I've had research that I'm, you know, was in an OT, very OT related realm. I've got a strong application to put forward. So I put it forward. Um, Trust Life's timing, got rejected from all three Ontario universities that I applied to, and not in a landslide, in a heartbreakingly close <laughs> cutoff, um, and to the point of didn't even get to an interview, so it was just based on the GPA. So that almost, again, was a way to cope, but also I was like, well, they didn't even meet me, because if they'd met me, they would have liked me, because you know, and I think as OTs, we need that interview because we're, we're people, people it's, we need these social skills and these interaction skills. So again, got rejected, but thankfully before I got rejected within the midst, all the application process, I had a friend who, again, um, I'll give another, hi, this is full of shout outs, this podcast, maybe this will really make sure that these individuals will listen to it. But yeah. Cody Watson, uh, Cody! there he is. He's so happy right now listening to this. If he made it this far, <laughs> Yeah. but it's Cody and I did our undergrad together in kin. And then we did the masters of kin together and he wanted to be a physiotherapist. Now he kind of had accepted the fact that Ontario wasn't going to happen for him. And so he was looking overseas slash. He also wanted a bit of an adventure and loved the UK. His family's ties to England. 
And so he had applied to Queen Margaret University in Scotland. And he was bugging me and bugging me and said, Sarah, just apply, just apply. And I was like, no, there's no way I can move to Scotland. I'm a homebody. I am going to live in Chatham forever. Waterloo is as far as I'll go. Like it's a two hour distance. And so he must have said something right because I think it was free to apply. And I said, okay, I'm going to apply. And so I applied and I'm, I think it was around the same time that I got rejected. I got an interview for QMU and it was like, okay, let's do this. So I did the interview for Scotland, loved everything about the program. I'd looked into it in the meantime, loved it had talked to so many amazing connections there, had talked to students who were currently there from Canada, had done my research as the slightly type A that I am. I had looked up like menus of the campus restaurant before I came over here just to see if there was anything, like what were the prices of food? What could I eat? This is this is what I mean when I say I like to plan and organize certain things. I just like to know what I'm getting into sometimes. But <laughs> long-winded way to say, in my trusting life's timing outlook on life my parents are very much so in on this with me they know this is how I think and they support that and they kind of use that language around me now when I was I saw not getting into Ontario as a failure I was very upset about this it was a dream crushed to be honest because I had wanted to go I'd wanted to be an OT but I'd had in my head that I was going to happen close to home. So that took a minute to process. After that, I thought, okay, I've got this other option of Scotland. And my dad said, you know what, Sarah, this isn't a plan B career. This is a plan B pathway. So this in no way is me saying, okay, I can't be an OT, so I'll be something else. This is me knowing I want to be an occupational therapist. I'm just taking a plan B pathway. I'll admit it wasn't my first pick. My first pick was Ontario and staying close to home. But I took that other pathway to get here. And I'm so glad I did. I have absolutely no regrets about it. Again, trust life's timing. If I could scream it from the, now that we've brought it up, I'm going to say it in every sentence, but it's true. It's, and again, I don't mean this in a negative connotation way, but sometimes in the healthcare and post-grad school life, there'll be people who didn't get into med school, so they'll go into physio. There'll be people who didn't get into physio, so they'll go to OT. There'll be people, who, like, you know, there's there's movement within, within. And it's hard because they're all such different professions. They're all medical professions, but they have such different ethos behind them and attract different types of people to the roles so I do firmly believe that they're all very distinct roles but that's why I was so determined I guess to not choose a plan b career but take a plan plan b pathway to get to my plan a career and again I'm I'm so happy I did because here I am in Scotland and I was able to meet an amazing group of Canadians over in Scotland but we had such a close group between the physio and the OT because I came over here with Cody who got into the physio program and is now a practicing physio well done Cody and 
you know, we were able to meet. I have lifelong Irish friends. I have lifelong friends, Scottish friends as well. Not as many Scottish friends, not as many Scottish people in the programs as you'd think in Scotland. But I was able to travel and I, I hadn't done much traveling. I was able to live abroad I'm one of those people who can say like oh I lived abroad for four years I lived in Scotland you know those annoying people I'm gonna be one of them I'm gonna be one of those old old ladies always talking about the glory days but I don't (laughs) care because I'm living them now and it's I just don't regret it at all I honestly I've had the time of my life in that two years I learned so much it was the exact same program um you know, I, I received the same quality of education that I would have in Ontario. I was able to do an international placement, which I did in London, Ontario. So I was the international student from Chatham, Ontario, which was pretty funny. Um, but again, I was able to apply and reassure myself that what I was learning in Scotland and the level and quality and perspective of grad school was the the same as home that would be applicable because that was my biggest fear was that I would go abroad to get this training and I would come home and none of it would apply it would be useless or it would be completely different and what a waste of money and all those other aspects and so I was able to as my last placement work within an acquired brain injury um, unit and able to apply all those skills and learn from the Western peers that were beside me, but also display things that I was learning that they hadn't. It was a very interesting dynamic of pride of the program that I was learning in and pride of where I was coming from as an OT and very reassuring of the fact that, okay, what I I chose the right path. I chose the right career. I'm back at home applying it And kind of any worries that I had were put to rest, which was, again, so nice. And I was also so lucky to have such supportive placements. Pause, Mon. There's a spider and I need to kill it. (laughs) Okay. Oh, dear. Is it that big? Yep. Oh, my God. That's the hump We're back. And a spider oh has been murdered. Time of death, 2.11 p.m. on time. <laughs> 7.12 Scotland time. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Oh. Sorry, that was so distracting. I could see it crawling in the side. And I was like, um, brief intermission. Yeah, that's fine. That's gross. Yeah. Um, okay, well, you were talking about essentially coming home and doing a placement and kind of feeling validated in knowing that the education you were receiving was just as good, if not as good, if not better than what you would have gotten while you were at home. And that's it. It's, it is that validation. It's knowing that, okay, that risk that I took will pay off because I know I want to be an occupational therapist back in Canada. I know I don't want to stay in Scotland. I'm here now. It's amazing because I'm able to work. I can't work in Canada yet because holy cow, the process to practice back in Canada as an OT, especially amidst a global pandemic, is not a quick process. Um, So again, my transition out of grad school is forever occurring. As much as I'm two years into the professional world now, I'm still having to write my accreditation exams. 
and someone who did this degree and then a research before that, I haven't done a formal exam in a long time. So I'm quite nervous about the two big exams I have coming up, to be honest, just because you get out of that mindset of the undergrad of studying for multiple choice exams as someone who's, you know, doing a research master's or a professional master's where so much of your marks are placements and papers and case studies and vivas where you're having to verbally justify and defend certain case scenarios. And so that's kind of my, my next steps out of grad school are finishing these exams. And here I am saying leaving grad school behind me, but we all know what, what the, who knows what the future may <laughs> hold. That's Paula Fletcher constantly trying to bring me back for a PhD, but don't do it. Don't do it. Nope. <laughs> I will be that other voice against Paula. If you're listening to this right now, I'm sorry, but yeah. I will be that voice against you. <laughs> on it's, not even, it's not even a, 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 a hate on grad school, not even a hate on master's programs or academia at all. It's just now that I'm working, I love it way too much to step back from it. And I'm able to see that I can still implement research into my career every single day. I have to do, you know, initial interviews with every single patient I have to capture their life story and to capture their mental health and their well-being and their perspective. I'm doing qualitative interviews (laughs) every single day with every patient I have. And so again, it's that skill of knowing when to prompt that skill of knowing how to read a room and pick up on the nonverbal communication that's being put across to you, that skill of being able to be empathetic while still being professional and creating that therapeutic relationship with someone. These are all things that I would not genuinely have learned to the degree that I learned them without that master's of kinesiology genuinely it's doing those qualitative interviews within that you know within that degree and within that experience formed me as a researcher but has now formed me as a clinician and I like I literally can't say enough good things about it it's just you don't everyone says you know oh you'll use these skills later in life and I feel like sometimes it's like yeah 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 but like I'm actually seeing the way that I am now and it's nice. It's just nice to know that all that time that was put in is, is helping me like, daily, really. And it's for the benefit of my patients as well. Like I'm a better OT because of it for people. So it again, like it's everyone benefits from it. I'm a better listener. I'm a better communicator. I'm a better advocate. Like I'm able to go to a multidisciplinary team meeting now with these big doctors and clinical psychologists and people who are paid far more than I am as a lowly OT, but I'm able to advocate and, you know, present to groups, which again, you're having to defend a thesis. You're having to propose and defend and present and manage and supervise students. I'm having to supervise students now as a clinician. Like the carryover really is way more applicable than I saw when I was in it. But again, sometimes I think you have to be out of something to be able to reflect back on it and value it for what it was. And a year and a half, two years out, that's where I'm at now. So happy, happy out, Mon. (laughs) Okay. 
I've got like a million more questions and by a million, I mean like three. Um, (laughs) So to kind of go off of your train of thought and they all go, they all branch up things that you said. And I think I'm going to start with, actually, I'm going to start with this one. Okay. So you had mentioned, you know, you're kind of, you're going through the accreditation process in terms of being able to practice back home. And I just feel like this might be informative for people that are listening that are potentially studying abroad or doing some sort of professional degree abroad. And they want to come back home to Canada. If you want to tell me about maybe what's involved in coming back home and being able to practice back home and where you are in that process. Yeah. Don't do it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I just advertised it for the entire time, but no, it's so basically this is just for OT specifically. Physio has a different journey. Theirs is also a whole accreditation process, which I saw through Cody and my other friends within that program, but it's a different kind of regulatory body that handles it back in Canada. So We've got Acatro that handles it back in Canada and we have to do something that's called the C's process. So basically the first stage is paperwork. So it's sending your transcripts. It's going through your whole two-year course with a fine tooth comb and justifying that you learned what you learned. So they'll send you different topics. So anatomy, and you have to say what lecture and what day you learned anatomy on, or they'll say, you know, ethics or OT clinical record keeping. And you have to go through and prove and attach all the lecture slides and syllabus that you learned what you did. They want to make sure that we're competent OTs. That's fair enough, but it's lengthy, but it's completely doable, completely doable. So we did all that. And then we had to do an ethics exam, which we were able to do online. We had to do there was an English speaking, but that's was just a checkbox because English is the only language I speak. Um, then now we're at the stage where we need to do our competency assessment, which is an in-person interview. And that's where this whole process with COVID took a turn in the sense of everything was paused because normally you would sit one-on-one with an OT for a day and have a six hour chat three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, one-on-one, basically discussing your clinical reasoning, your understanding of the Canadian system, talking through case studies and having a, presenting a verbal demonstration of what you've learned and justifying why you'll be a competent OT back in Canada, which is a lot. So that took a pause because obviously the in-persons weren't happening. So they've managed to figure it out. And now we're doing virtual and so mine's scheduled for February. So mine's in about Woo! a month and a half. I know, like, let's get this going. So I started this, not this past September, the September before. So I'm going to, by the time I write my Canada exam, I'll be two years out of the program, which is bizarre when you think about it, but trust life's timing, Mon, um, with everything. So I've been able, so yes, I will write that exam in February. And then the written Canadian exam, I have to sit because after that, sorry, after that verbal one, the Canada process, that Acatro will be done and dusted. You then get a report and they decide, yep, you've passed your ethics and your verbal exam. And then you're able to sit the Canadian exam that all the Canadians sit because we all have a standardized exam. Um, and that's the, the written one. That's the multiple choice. 
So that's only twice a year as of now. But again, with COVID, things are moving and being offered at different times. But there was one in January that we missed. So we won't be able to do that one. But hopefully the July exam, I'll be able to write. Um, but I think the biggest thing I've been grateful for is I and a few of my peers chose to stay over here and work as OTs because we studied here. We were able to practice right away. That's just kind of a sending in your transcripts and registering with the regulatory body in the UK and you're able to practice. So I'm, by the time I write my exam, I will have had two years of experience, which is kind of studying every day. Every day is a school day anyways, but I think it's keeping me like fresh and relevant in the sense of I'm working as an OT. So it's kind of an everyday study for OT. I'm not working as an OT in Canada, but no one is because you can't until you're registered until you pass these exams. So it's definitely a long process. People did things that were, you know, unique and fit their life circumstances. One of my best friends moved home just for the way that life was for her and her husband. Her husband did the physio program over here and they moved home and that worked for them. But that being said, they weren't working as OTs and PTs for this past year while we were just waiting for this paperwork to kind of sit around. So I'm glad I chose it, but it's quite the process. Okay. So then at the end of it all, like, do you plan on coming back home and practicing at home? Like what's, what's the Mom end and dad, game if here? you're listening? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah. But it's no, it's yes. The plan has always, the plan has always been to come home. Okay. It's, um, I'm throwing my AirPods everywhere while you're talking. Oh my God. Fine. Okay. It's, Sorry. It's um, OT, how do I say this nicely without sounding like I'm money hungry? Mm. OTs make a lot more at home than they do here. The NHS is amazing. I've been a recipient of it now over here and have kind of worked on the other side of it. However, there's a, you make a certain wage in the NHS and with the international student debt that I needed to pursue this degree, will not cut it. So I'll be moving home for logistical reasons, but also for the fact that this, that was always the plan. It's, you know, I am a Canadian girl. I'm so thankful for this chapter in my life. I'm thankful that it was able to be extended with these two years of working and now, yeah, hopefully go home and continue the momentum that I've began working as an OT now. And be able to kind of specialize and hopefully pick a job that I'm passionate about in an area that I want. Cause you know, your first job out of school is a job. You're thankful to have it. You're <laughs> thankful to be working and out of it. And I love my job now, but I like, I don't see myself in adult mental health forever. Again, I love that I'm at it now. I'm learning so much about myself. I'm pushing myself to my limits and definitely pushing myself out of my comfort zone purely for the fact that, as I said, throughout my whole journey, I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I wanted to be an occupational therapist with kids. And so adults 18 to 65 is completely out of my comfort zone because the other end of my comfort zone is the seniors with dementia that I did my, my you know, my MKIN on. So this was something that I never saw myself in. I'm loving it. I'm getting to do, you know, craft groups and the creative aspect and the cooking and the creative problem solving every day with people. But 
hopefully I'll be able to go home and, you know, have some choice, having some experience under my belt and having the luxury of having a transition period in the sense of applying while I'm still over here working instead of having to move home without a job and start from scratch again. But again, this is the plan right now amidst a global pandemic, Mon. So who knows? <laughs> but I will promise to continually tell myself to trust life's timing throughout this next bit of my journey. I think that's fair. It's going to be needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From everyone well, in my life. Sarah, well, remember that time you said trust life's timing? Listen I, to your own advice. I know. Just like stick a sticky note to your forehead. That's Just remember it. it. Trust it. Trust it. And that's it. Yeah. Well, flowing along this, another big question that I had for you, and I feel like this is a common experience for a lot of people, but a lot of people don't talk about it, is you experienced a lot of rejections and redirects and major life events. Heck yeah. In this trajectory. So what do you think you've, let's talk about how those experiences were for you maybe at the time, whereas how you reflect upon those experiences now. And how does the way you see these things as they happened or as they were happening, how does that all differ? Like hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's so true. I, I, you know, I said it was grad school was a journey of heartbreak for me for a lot of the time. It was rejections and redirections and having to come the, you know, mourn dreams that I had before I can process the next possible dream and then actually living that dream and looking back and thinking how was this never my plan a dream and knowing that I did it and it's again like looking back after a master's in Scotland it's like why the heck would I have wanted to stay an hour away from home when I just did all of this and I while I was here I saw Spain and Italy and Greece and you know Scotland England Ireland it's you, it makes you reflect and question, you know, why was I so devastated when I lost that first dream? But it was because I didn't know that the second one was right around the corner. I didn't know the possibility of redirection and rejection. But I think it's in the language of it, isn't it? It's seeing it not as a rejection, but as a redirection and valuing that. And I think at the time I was devastated, but I think that is when I learned to start truly believing and trusting life's timing. And now when I have a rejection or a redirection, I'm telling myself that and I'm not getting as devastated because I know it's worked out in the past and I saw just how well it worked out. And so it's trusting that. And again, I'll continuously say this, not in a naive, passive way, but in a very, in a way that's as, in a way that is a product of growth and in a way that is a product of someone who has experienced rejection and health difficulties and personal circumstances and who's had life happen. You know, it's, I'm now, I've come to terms with it. And this is not saying that at 27, I've got it all figured out. We will forever be coming to terms with it. We will forever be looking back and, and realizing the growth that we've done. But I guess it's just so much growth has happened in the last 
four years, like so much growth has happened since my undergrad that it's, you know, I'm able to look at it now and think, okay, this is why that happened. And take that forward, I guess, take that peace of mind, knowing that I went on a heck of a roller coaster for those years and it turned out better than could be expected. So trust that with things going forward. This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email humans of grad school podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.